Hey y'all, welcome to Club by Classics. My name is Dave Braley and I'm here with... I'm Dinah Delilah. Today we're discussing the uh, Harper Lee supposed classic, Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> okay, so this one is a favorite from my childhood. So Dave, I'm going to let you go first on this one. Okay. Um, so the book was written. Let's start with let's start with that. I think last time when we did Gatsby, we kind of bounced around before we got to the story. Mm-hmm. So let's start with that. Okay. Uh, the book is written in nineteen or published in nineteen sixty, which means it's written you know fifty eight, fifty nine, somewhere in the late fifties. Uh, it's set in in nineteen thirty two to nineteen thirty five, mm-hmm. Macomb, Alabama, which is actually just a what's the word? It, it's a, a it's actually Monroeville, Alabama, which is where Harper Lee grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and the main characters in our story are Scout Finch, who is Harper Lee, sort of. Her brother, Jer- Jeremy, who we call Jem. And their best friend, Dill, who actually is the, the famous author of Breakfast at Tiffany's and In Cold Blood, Truman Capote. Mm-hmm. Um, the story sort of takes, it takes place over three summers, and there's a couple of main storylines to this. Um... One of them is these kids sort of bothering and then slowly getting to see as human a neighbor across the street who they call Boo Radley, who their father Atticus, who is also a fairly central character, insists upon them calling him by his real name, which is Arthur. And it's just sort of this development of their relationship with this character who is seen as something of a, of a demon, of a wild dog, someone you can't trust. Mm-hmm. That that uh, through basically just the way that life goes, they start to realize that he's really not, and he's just there, sort of trying to make friends, but really probably doesn't know how. Mm-hmm. Um, because and this is something I think we should discuss. I think Arthur Radley might be autistic. You know, looking at it from our lens now, he obviously has some sort of developmental disability, right? Um, or intellectual disability Mm -hmm. uh, from our perspective now. But again, this is set in the 1930s when your choices were you lock the person in your house forever to take care of them or you send them to an asylum, which was essentially a torture chamber. Right, and so his his choice, and I think it's by his choice, after he commits a crime but is allowed to get off, Mm -hmm. is to basically be locked in his house for forever. And the uh, crime he commits, he's a young adult and he attacks his father. Was it his father? I thought mm-hmm. he attacked the, the one of the, the, the city judges or something and him and his friends locked him in a, an outhouse. The, there was a, an issue when he was a teenager with one of the city judges oh, and yeah. his parents tried to control that by keeping him in the house mm-hmm. and then as a young adult, a few years later, he attacks his father. Right. And... After that, he's never seen again. Okay. And the other main storyline of this book, at least, and maybe I'm missing others, but I think the other main storyline of this book is the story of, of Jem and Scout's father, Atticus, taking on a case in which he is defending a black man against rape charges against a white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really intense and really emotionally evocative plot line that can really weigh on you and can really make you hate the book if you're if you're seeing it from a one-dimensional perspective. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I would say that's actually the main theme of the book, is that trial. Yes. While Scout has very little involvement in it because she's eight years old right. you know, in this she's book. She's the narrator. I forgot to mention She that. is the narrator. Um, the way that that trial colors 
everything that happens, every experience that she and her brother and their friend have over that summer is really important to the story. And it's also important to point out that at that point in time, in that place, um, a black man raping a white woman with it was a death sentence. Right. If he is convicted, he will be put to death for it. Right, and that actually does come into play um, with some of Atticus. And I mean, really, I feel like that that theme is used to show who Atticus was as a person mm -hmm. and how he tried to raise his children. And I think it's it's honestly pretty well done. Um, I think so, too. Yeah. And I went into this book. I had never read all of this book. I think having read through it, I had tried several times and just never been able to get through it. I had a hard time getting past the casual racism that was indicative of the South in the 30s. Okay, um, yeah. Because there are, as is as I think it's uh, there, the, the Finch's aunt, Alexander, points out, four classes of people in makeup. Uh-huh. There's the whites who live in town, most of whom are descendants of old landed gentry, like the Finches are. Mm -hmm. And then there's the country folk who live out in the woods. Um, the Cunninghams is the family that's used as the as the example, the metaphor for all of the country folk in this. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Yules who are white trash. They're not just country folk. They are what we would call white trash. In fact, they even get referred to as trash. And they actually live at the dump. Right. At the city dump. Right. And then below them are all of the African-American people in town. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, since this is set in the 30s, they use three different terms for the African-American, for the black population of Mangum. And I won't use any of them. No, no. Um, I think for the purpose of this show, we will just say N-word. That refers to all of the uses yeah. of those words that us being white people do not have the right to use ever. Those words should not pass through our lips. Right, ever. Um, and so as to first what I thought about it, the first 12 or 13 chapters, I was bored. Mm -hmm. It took so long to go anywhere. It was moving so slow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the whole time I'm reading through and the... Uh, the things that I'm writing that are positive are things that are coming from Atticus Finch. Mm -hmm. um, like when he talks about why he's helping the, uh, uh, the Cunninghams for mm -hmm. free, you know, or accepting that, that what they can pay him is simply like hazelnuts and grapes and the things right. that they grow. And he's doing it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. They need the law. They need the help of the law. They need his expertise. And they're his neighbor. So he's just going to help his neighbor. Mm -hmm. um, so in those first few chapters, what did you think of Scout's description of her father? In those first three or four chapters, she gives a specific description. Do you remember? Um, I don't remember the specific like word-for-word -word description. If you have the word, please. Yeah, I actually went ahead and quoted it. She describes her dad as satisfactory. He played with us, read to us, and treated us with courteous detachment which gives you this impression of a man who is not very interested in his children. Right. And I feel like as the story goes on, you realize that isn't true. Yeah. He was and they call it they call it call him Atticus throughout the entire book. Mm -hmm. And there's even a scene with their aunt where their aunt makes it clear that she doesn't like that, but you know, he is fine with it. This is what he wants. Right. This is a very untraditional parent-child relationship. Yes. But as you see throughout the rest of the book, 
He loves his children very much. He is a very loving father. Mm -hmm. He's just a father who doesn't know how to express love physically. Right. He's just an extremely intelligent man Mm -hmm. who knows the law really well and can tell you any of the finer points of any law that you wanted to debate with him. But he doesn't know how to connect on an emotional level with his children. See, and not not a not a. There's actually there's actually a scene with their uncle, their dad's brother, who Mm -hmm. does not have children, and he does something that really upsets Scout. And Scout overhears her uncle tell her father Mm -hmm. that he could never have children because he doesn't understand them, and that's what makes Atticus such a good father is he understands children. And you realize that throughout the entire book, he isn't detached from his children. He is treating his children like people. Right. He isn't treating his children like they are tiny little things that need to be beaten into submission, which was Mm -hmm. common in the time, or have to be coddled all the time. He was treating them like people. He was listening to what they needed and providing them with all of the basics and then providing them with a good education and providing them with love the way you would love another adult. Yeah, that's fair. So it's a very non-traditional relationship, but it's clearly a good, loving relationship. Right. Now, actually, you mentioned their uncle, whose name is Jack. Their uncle's name is Jack. Is he gay? You know, I feel like he might have been queer-coded just because Mm -hmm. he's... A man in his 40s in the South who's a well-respected professional. I think he's a doctor and has no interest in being married and having children. Right. But I pick up, I don't know, some of the things, and maybe this is just me projecting, which I think a good novel makes you project in the right ways on its characters. Yeah, yeah. I, I project on Jack as being very gay. Okay. Um, maybe not open. Maybe I'm probably the only one in the family that knows is Atticus. Because Atticus is probably the only one in the family that would accept him. Well, and this is set in the 30s in rural, what is it, Alabama. Uh, And there's absolutely no way this man is going to be out. No, I mean, even, I think he lives in, like, either Mobile or Mm -hmm. Chattanooga or one of the bigger cities in the South. But even then, he wouldn't be out. And it's written from the perspective, again, of an 8-year-old. So an 8-year-old isn't going to have that kind of language, especially in that time and place. So there might be things that she's writing that make it really easy for us to, as adults now, look back and go, oh, yeah, that's queer-coded. Mm-hmm. The, the language just didn't exist for an eight-year-old at the time. And that's true. And for, for, I don't know about with Jack, because nobody ever asked her, but apparently a, I, I found an article from, <clears throat> I don't remember the name of the paper, but it's a San Francisco paper. It's a gay paper. Mm-hmm. And this this writer, this interview, this journalist had been after Harper Lee for years and writing her letters and trying to get getting her to write back. Mm-hmm. And finally she did. And basically the crux of his letter was you're not um, well, I guess I guess are you gay by extension. Yeah. But is Scout gay? Is Scout a you know a, a queer coded lesbian child? And basically Harper Lee responded with no absolutely not. I'm not gay, Scout's not gay. I didn't if if you're reading that that's you projecting. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not really. Like her response was actually fairly accepting. I can see where that idea would come from, though, because Mm -hmm. Scout, in a lot of ways, and I think this is one of the things that I always loved about the book, is this is written from the point of view of an eight-year-old girl who doesn't want to be a girl. 
She doesn't want to be stuck in dresses and doing girly things and playing with dolls. And she even says it in the book that at some point someone calls her a girl and she gets so upset because she doesn't want to be a girl. Mm -hmm. Being a girl is a bad thing. She wants to be able to climb trees and play with her brother. And at one point her dad buys them guns. She wants to be out there shooting things with her guns. And when her brother, who's a little older starts to get closer to puberty and doesn't want to hang out with her and she has to start doing girly things it's kind of traumatic for her yeah to have to now be a girl and sit with the girls and with the right. women going to the missionary society with her aunt mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. having to sit there and pretend to be a perfect lady while the ladies are being codedly awful about her father oh yeah yeah Um, and she doesn't understand any of that conversation no and you can tell she doesn't understand what they're saying to her right right um so and let me pose this to you as a question because one of my biggest problems with the novel until i got to the end actually was that it just sort of plods along yeah it's very slow and it takes forever to go anywhere i think that's intentional there's an old saying, I, I, for our listeners, I spent 26 years in Texas. I'm from, maybe not the traditional Old South, but the South. Mm-hmm. There's a saying in the South that really is talking about why people tend to talk slow. Is that we don't do much of anything fast in the South because it's just too hot. Okay, yeah. And I think that's sort of an intentional thing on Harper Lee's part. Is that, you know, it's set in the summers in the South. Yes. Nobody's doing anything too fast. No. Because it's blisteringly hot. In fact, she describes that in that courtroom scene. Mm-hmm. You know, there at the end where she, it's the first time she's ever seen her father open his shirt and take mm-hmm, his tie mm-hmm. off. Feels like he's standing there naked. Mm-hmm. But he's sweating so profusely and has been working so hard all day that he feels the need to stop and open up. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, did you feel like that was intentional? I, I think so. And to me, it read as maybe not a Southern thing. And I'm not raised in the South, so right. I wouldn't see it as a Southern thing. To me, again, it goes back to this being the point of view of an eight-year-old. When you're eight years old, time moves so slowly. When you're eight years old, all summer feels like it lasts years. Fair. And as we age, time feels like it moves quicker. And I think that as the book goes along, we go from these slow, lazy summers to things start to happen towards the end of the book when she's starting to get a little bit older. Right. Things start to happen then. Right. That's funny because you mentioned that description of Atticus and I couldn't recall it. I'm flipping through my notes and I actually had that highlighted. Okay. And and, and I have basically the same feelings as you as... You know, and my, my take on it was maybe this is a, a generational thing, but Atticus does not come off favorably from this characterization. He sounds no. aloof, he sounds uncaring, and as if he really doesn't want to be a parent. Yeah. But you're right, the way that he's developed as a character, it's clear that he loves being a parent. He loves mm-hmm. his children, they are his world. Mm-hmm. It's just that he treats them like the little human beings they are. He's mm-hmm. not treating them like, like their children and talking down to them. Yeah. In fact, he never talks down to them. Um, there's a quote in there, I don't know if I highlighted it, if I can find it, I'll pull it out, but he talks about how he always gives them an honest answer because mm-hmm. your children know when you don't give them an honest answer, and that's harder. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's easier for the child, and really easier for you, just to give them as honest an answer as they will understand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on that, so there's a scene where Scout has a fight with her cousin. It's right after the mm-hmm. trial. Right after Atticus has taken right. um, taken the case. Yeah, it's at Christmas, I think. And it is. It's at Christmas. And yeah. the cousin calls her father some horrible names. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and word lover, yeah. which she says flat out, she doesn't understand what that word means. She understands the tone that's used. Right. And so she punches him mm-hmm. and chases him around the yard and beats the shit out of him yeah. and gets into trouble for it. So what happens in that is her uncle, the childless one, actually separates them and asks did she hit him? And she says, yes. She's yeah. completely honest with him. And he punishes her immediately for it. Right. And later she goes up to her room and she's crying and she's refusing to speak to her uncle who she adores. Mm-hmm. And he goes in to talk to her and she tells him that she deserved to be punished. But what she's angry about is that he didn't hear her side of it. Yeah. Atticus always hears her side even when she's wrong. And you you hear so much in that. Mm-hmm. So much about how Atticus parents his children is he wants to hear both sides of the story. Right. He doesn't jump to punishment. Right. And that's the point where the uncle then says that he doesn't understand children. Right. And that's such a telling moment that I think we forget about his parents. That yeah. sometimes our children just want to be heard. Yes, that's fair. Even when there is a punishment that needs to happen, even when there is discipline that needs to be hap- needs to be done, sometimes the child just wants to be heard. Yes. Before the the timeouts and the in right. this time period the spankings, they just want to be heard first. Yeah, they want to hear. They want you to hear their side of the story. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that with Atticus comes back to the way that actually multiple adults in the story describe Atticus as being the same man at home as he is in town. Mm-hmm. He's just a fair-minded, level-headed man. Well, and in that same scene, after she and her uncle talk, and she overhears her uncle and father talking, mm-hmm. um, her uncle and father are downstairs and start talking about the trial. Yes. And Atticus starts talking about why he has to do this, why he has to take this case, why this is important to him. And the whole time, Scout is hiding on the stairs. And at this point in the story, she's under the impression that the grown-ups don't know she's listening. And she's starting to understand why her dad is doing what he has to do. And then her dad tells her to go upstairs. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And she says that later on in life, she realized that her father was aware she was there the whole time and everything he said he was saying for her benefit he wanted her to understand but knew that if he just said it his kids wouldn't hear it right but if he said it to an adult while she's just listening in when she's not supposed to She's paying attention to it. And that shows a depth of understanding in that character. And it tells you so much about him as a person Mm -hmm. and his understanding of humans, his understanding of people and how to communicate with people. Right. Oh, and I love the way that he communicates. Mm -hmm. Um, I love, I think my favorite scene in the whole book is when he's got Mayla Yule on the the, the witness stand. Mm -hmm. And he starts out by just asking her questions and just sort of softening her up Mm -hmm. before he then just turns that lawyer thing on her. And then, you know, wait wait a minute. This is what happened? Are you certain that's what happened? Mm -hmm. You know, and just just starts going at her. And then you watch both the the not victim, the the complainant, Mm And the and her story fall apart within about three seconds. And mm-hmm. the way he did it is just masterful. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's got some masterful lines that I think, for being written in 1960, are a little ahead of their time, um, as, especially for being suffer, uh, said by somebody who's a white man in the 30s in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene at the end, after the trial, when he's talking about, when Atticus, Atticus is talking about how wrong it is to treat black people the way that white people in the South, he's talking specifically about Makem, but... Mm-hmm. It's a metaphor for the South and really for the country. Mm-hmm. That how wrong it is and how that, you know, eventually, the way he says it is, we're going to pay the bill for it. And I hope it's not in your children's time. Yeah. Um, and what, what that struck in me was actually a line from Dr. King. What's interesting is the book was written eight years before Dr. King said this. Okay. This in the I Have a Dream speech, which all most people know of that as the last little bit, that I have a dream that mm-hmm. you know, someday my children will sit and be judged by the content of their character and the color of their skin. Right. The crux of that speech is a lot more about the broken promises of the Declaration of Independence. Hmm. And the way he phrases it, and I'm just going to quote word for word here. Um, when the architects of our great republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note. What's a more simple term for promissory note? A check. Yeah. Um, To which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, will be guaranteed through the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today, and this is 1963, it is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as our citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred ob- obligation, America has given its colored people a bad check, a check that has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we have come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and security of justice. Wow. For one thing, incredibly powerful, and we don't talk about that, and I had never heard that until a couple of years ago when mm-hmm. I was doing a, when I was still teaching, I, I took a class on the radical Dr. King mm-hmm. that really sort of changed my mind of him. Because I have, I had for the longest time probably the same view of Dr. King that you do, which is the view that the Reagan administration allowed to be taught, and in many ways still allows to be taught, that King was, was just about love and light and we should all get along. See, and I... Just through some of the other history that I've read as an adult, because you're right, that's what I was taught. As an adult, I have, you know, read some history where King was, yes, he was about love, but King was also an agitator. King was also, by the standard of the time, a criminal. He was arrested more than once. He was involved in very intense and occasionally violent protest. And while he was not as willing to commit violence as, say, a Malcolm X, Mm -hmm. he was not peaceful in everything that he did. No, and he even said, he wrote a book called, uh, I'm just called What Comes Next or Where Do We Go From Here? Something like that. It's right after um, the the Civil Rights Act and the Equal Rights Act and the Voting Rights, or the Civil Rights Act and the Equal Rights Act of 1964, 65. Basically, it is really about like, okay, so we've gotten this, but what comes next? Mm -hmm. The struggle's not over. Where he talks about like, he doesn't necessarily agree with people like Malcolm X or Stokely Carmichael, who was was a Black Panther. 
um, or he mm-hmm. would be new, new the founder of the Panthers. He's right. Like, I don't. I don't agree with them that violence is the answer, but I understand why violence is what they choose. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it's similar to when he was. He did. He in, a, in an interview said that the riot is is the language of the unheard. Yeah. Now, that's an interesting point there about um, the Black Panthers, because that's another thing that we, as white people, are only taught Uh the Black Panthers and violence. Yes, we're not taught about the social programs they ran. We aren't taught what pushed them to violence. We aren't taught that in those black neighborhoods, nothing was being done to help people. So the Black Panthers got together and created food programs for children. They got together and created daycare programs so that black mothers could go to work. And the Black Panthers, you know, we talk about some of the men in the Black Panthers movement, Tupac Shakur's mother was a prominent leader of the Black Panthers. And in the white community, we ignore that. Yeah, Angela Davis was a prominent Black Panther. Yes, we ignore all of the nonviolent things and only focus on the violent things that we as white people pushed them to. Right. We caused that violence. We caused the riots. We caused what we see as a violent group to become violent because... We kept pushing when all they wanted was to feed their children. Right. We kept yeah. pushing. We caused the pain that Atticus French was talking about. Yes. Which is what he's saying, too, is, you know, we're pushing them to this, and the payback is going to happen. Yes. And if we keep pushing, it's just going to get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so, so that was, I know we had a little tangent there, but that quote just immediately called to mind for me that whole section of the I Have a Dream speech. Yeah, yeah, I can see why. Yeah. Um, let me see here. What else do we have? But at the same time, Atticus, oh, Atticus isn't always um, perfect. There are things, there are things that come out of his mouth that just, I don't like to hear it. So things like when he's talking to his children about about the jury selection and who they were, he says they're all men. Mm-hmm. And Scout says something like, women can't sit on juries. <laughs> and, you know, that just sounds wrong. Uh, do, uh-huh. do, you, do you agree with that? And he says something like, I do, or I understand it. Yeah. I guess it's to protect our frail ladies from sordid cases like Tom's. Besides, I doubt if we'd ever get a complete case tried, the ladies would be interrupting to ask questions. My only response to that was, gross, Atticus. See, and I read that and thought, is he being sexist? Or is this a moment between father and daughter? Because just prior to that, he had been talking, and she interrupted mm-hmm. to ask him a question. <laughs> okay. Is this a moment between father and daughter that we don't quite get from mm-hmm. outside? Um, and when he says we have to protect them because they're frail, is that meant in a serious way? Because he's never treated his daughter like she's frail. That's fair. I don't know. I... I don't know, maybe, maybe he's teaching an object lesson, and I missed the point. See, and again, I, I again read this from the perspective of someone who was an eight-year-old girl in a very misogynistic upbringing that really did, in a lot of ways, enforce that stereotype of women being frail, and at the same time, I got some messages at home that were like, yes, honey, girls are frail, don't ever use the word sissy again. Which is interesting because the person you got 
messages like that. Well, not that person, but the, you know, the person who was teaching you those messages, Atticus Finch is one of his favorite characters. Yeah. 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 Um, I, and I got a lot of contradictory messages mm -hmm. about womanhood mm -hmm. as a child. Um, and I think... So to me, I read that with Atticus and I'm like, is this an object lesson or is this the 1930s and he's a man? Yeah, yeah, and I guess maybe you're, you're being more forgiving than I am here. Um, I think I am because I love this book. Yeah. I, I think I am being very forgiving because I still love this book. And I don't... I was texting, actually, my father, who he's another one that Atticus Finch is his favorite fictional character, mm -hmm. feels like that Atticus Finch was sort of foundational to who he is as a man and as a father, which there could be some debate there. Okay. Um, but I, I told him, I was like, I think I enjoyed the book, if enjoy is the right word to use. Because this book is so complex and so complicated mm -hmm. that to use a simple word like enjoyed or love doesn't cover all of it for me um I, I i would read this book again see and um, i think this book resonates yes i i would not say i enjoy this book because there's so much of this book that if you pay attention to it causes pain mm -hmm. there is so much of this book that isn't good and like you had said earlier it is very much parts of the book are very slow mm-hmm Parts of the book are, okay, can we get to an actual story? Do we really need to hear about these kids in their summertime and the, the little play that they're writing between them? But those moments are so important, and those right. little tiny moments come back. Um, for example, we were talking a little bit about this book off air, and we talked about that neighbor down the street. And you said you had some thoughts on her, the old woman. Oh, oh yeah, Miss uh, Dubois or Dubois. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, my thoughts on that was... What is the story of her? So the story there is she's... I don't even know how old she's supposed to be, but projected at least as being like in her 70s or 80s, mm -hmm. which means that she would have been born sometime in the 1850s. So she was the last... Because this is the 1930s. Mm -hmm. So she's the last vestige, vestiges of the Old South. Yeah. Which I think is actually what she's supposed to represent upon reflection. Oh, okay. Um but she's uh, the, the kids right after Atticus takes the trial. Uh, there's there's a whole chapter or two where every time they pass by her house, she starts just saying and screaming the nastiest things to these children. That, mm -hmm. You know how awful their father is and how awful they are, and she, she won't let won't let it go, won't leave it alone. And I don't remember what the final the straw that breaks that breaks the camel's back is. Um, but she says something to them that actually doesn't get to Scout, which is interesting because Scout's the hothead of the two children. Mm -hmm. Jeremy, Jen has got a much more level head, and, and Scout plays it because he's older, which makes right. sense. He's 12 at this point. Yeah. But she says something, and I don't remember what it is she says, that just really triggers Jen as they're going into town. And they go into town, he buys himself a wooden train or some such. doesn't matter what toy he buys, but he buys Scout a twirling baton like you would use in marching band. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as they go by her house on the way back, she's got these bushes with white camillas, which are obviously, they're white camillas, so it's a symbol for whiteness mm -hmm. and racism, but the white camilla also represents purity. He runs up, he grabs Scout's baton from her, and runs up and just savages her bushes. 
mm-hmm. destroys all of this old lady's flowers. And, you know, goes home, and of course Atticus finds out. Because it's pretty obvious who did it. You know, the old lady tells Atticus. And Atticus starts defending her and defending her for, for, for the way that she's acting. Mm-hmm. And basically just saying that she's a sick old lady and you just need to get over it. And... I understand that she's a sick old lady, and yes, as it turns out, she was dying and trying to break herself of an addiction to morphine. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like that excuses her, and I don't feel like it it, it excuses Atticus's defense of her. I don't feel like his defense of her is is justified. Um, Now, I feel like the punishment is justified, because he was going to do it anyways, where, you know, he basically makes his son go over and read to her every day for a month. To sort of help her and ease her through those pains mm-hmm. of morphine addiction, um, but I don't feel like his his the way he co- he scolds his son for his actions is correct. Because I don't feel like Jim is correct. I mean, in the moment reading it, I think my note on that was something like, "Hell yeah, Jim, get her," because <laughs> she just made me so mad. Mm-hmm. But then upon reflection, I mean, he's right to punish his son. His son screwed up. You don't damage somebody else's property. Right. Regardless of what they've said to you. That was just wrong. Um, but the way that Atticus defends her, I mean, it probably speaks to who Atticus is more than who I am. And probably to both. But I like, I I would tell my son, you know, yeah, you were wrong for, 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 for the property damage. And yeah, you're going to either work this off or just you're going to go sit with her. Mm-hmm. You're going to get, get, get to see what the, what this woman's dying moments look like because I'm going to use it to teach you a lesson. Yeah. Um, but just the way that he keeps defending her racism and her really shitty behavior just really gets me. Mm-hmm. See, and I, I felt the same way about his defense of her behavior. His defense of her behavior was disgusting. But I, I liked that he held his son accountable. Yes. And... It, at the beginning of that, all we know is that she's a cranky old bitch. That mm-hmm. is all we know. And the kids go and they have to read to her. And she's just a cranky bitch with them. And then their father tells them that they're done. They don't have to do it anymore. Right. And he, she dies. And when she dies, he explains to Scout that she had had an injury in her younger years. And that's why she's in a wheelchair. And the doctors had put her on this medicine, and she didn't want to die reliant on the medicine. So those last few weeks that they spent with her, they were helping her recover from a morphine addiction. Right. And they didn't understand that at the time, and at the time, Scout doesn't understand it. But it's one of those things that, as an adult, resonates with you. Uh That this wasn't... A depiction of drug addiction as the addict is a terrible person. Right. This is a depiction of drug addiction as this person is suffering and doesn't want to be this way. And we still have to show them kindness. Even when they're terrible, we have to show kindness. Yeah. I I, I, I will take that lesson. Uh, That was kind of how I came away from it feeling. But yeah, in Medias Res, Mm -hmm. as I'm reading that, that whole section... I was completely on Jem's side. Oh, I was too. the after when we find out everything. And I'm still on Jem's side. Yeah, to a degree. And I don't know that there are sides to be on necessarily. I would not encourage my children to destroy other people's property. Right. At the same time, like you said, she represents 
the Old South. Right. And the Old South had to be destroyed. Yeah. It had to be torn down. The Old South was dying. Right. And as it was dying, it was trying to tear everybody down with it. Yes. And they had to destroy the Old South. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still seeing some vestiges of that. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, we are still having to physically destroy some of the Old South. Right. We are still having to mentally destroy some of those attitudes, even in the North. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. We still have to tear those things down. Right. There was actually an interesting reference to that in the story, too. I don't know if you caught it. Uh, there where she's where Scout is sitting at the, the missionary ladies luncheon mm-hmm. um, I think it's her aunt or one of the ladies says something like she feels like southern people are superior to northerners mm-hmm. because northerners will let the blacks live next to them and live with them but yeah. they still tell them that they're not good enough mm-hmm. you know you can't be with us you're not good enough whereas mm-hmm. we at least have the decency to, to put them in their place mm-hmm. which is an awful thing to say but it's, it's one of those attitudes that you know even mm-hmm. in the north we're still working on destroying that i mean you look at the way that our cities are are, are built in the north um there's a reason that in most cities there's an east side of the major highway mm-hmm. and that that east side is always a largely minority area Yeah, because it was done intentionally. Highways were built through their land mm-hmm. to redline them out yes. of existence with, uh, with the, mm-hmm. the white population. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's always the east side, too. Yeah. It always <laughs> is. Yeah. And, and it's a planning choice, and mm-hmm. it's a thing that in the north we... Still do it. Yeah. But to where I think this whole tangent started, I I will agree with you. I don't think enjoy or love is correct. I think resonate is the right word to use. Mm -hmm. This book has resonated with me since I finished it. Um, I'm not much of a smoker. Or of cigarettes, anyways. Um, I'm not much of a smoker. I smoke every now and then. I've been smoking a bit more recently because of just stress. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I finished this book last night, after that last scene where she walks Arthur Radley home, Mm-hmm. I had to go for a long walk and smoke a couple of cigarettes and just sort of unwind and begin unpacking some of the things in this book because I realized immediately that there was so much to unpack, including the what I think is the dual reference of the title because they make the obvious reference at the end that one of the mockingbirds is Boo Radley, mm-hmm. that it will be a sin to let him take the fall, which we haven't talked about that yet. No, we'll get we? to that, yeah. Um, but for, for, for what he had done, it would be a sin to let him take the fall, because Boo Radley had never hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. The other mockingbird is Tom. Yeah. He didn't hurt anybody. He did nothing wrong, and it was a sin to kill that mockingbird. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is something we'll probably get to, too, we haven't really talked about. No, we haven't ha- talked about how the trial went. I do want to talk, before we get more into the trial, about the scene the night before the trial starts. Oh, I love that scene. So, their father... Mm-hmm. that uh, Tom has been moved to the county jail, which is adjacent to the courthouse, because the trial is starting the next day. Right. So instead of being kept in a very safe location with the sheriff's men... And the sheriff is a friend of Atticus yeah. and very much respects him and is going to protect Tom. Mm-hmm. He is then moved to the jail right next to the courthouse right. where there's less protection for him. And Atticus decides that he's going to go and sit overnight 
in front of the jail mm -hmm. because he fully expects that someone will try to harm his client. Mm -hmm. He goes alone to sit at night in front of that jail and we see something there of him that is, I don't want to say heroic, but is brave at least. And I, I would like to add to that, not just alone, unarmed. Yes. All he has with him is his newspaper. Yes, because in this book, he never carries a gun. Right, because as he says, a, gu a gun is an invitation for someone to shoot you. Yes, so he never has a gun. Yeah. And he sits there alone at night, mm -hmm. and his children don't know what he's doing, so they follow him. They sneak out of the house, they follow him in the middle <laughs> of the night, they see their dad, and they're going to go say hi, and a bunch of cars pull up. And they sit and watch from a distance for a second, and they don't recognize any of the men talking to their father, and it's a whole mob, because it's right. two or three cars full of men right. that show up. And Scout decides that she's going to go over and say hello. Yeah. And her, her brother tries to hold her back and can't. Mm -hmm. Her brother clearly understands what's going on, because in the descriptions, her brother seems scared. Right. She rushes up, pushes her way through this man, and wraps herself around her father, and then realizes that everyone's being quiet and mm -hmm. staring, and she doesn't recognize most of these men. And I love how Harper Lee describes how, how Scout first realizes that something is wrong. Mm -hmm. She says as she comes through the crowd, she sees for just the briefest second a flash of fear in her father's eyes. Yeah. And then as Jim and Delve are following her, that same flash of fear again. Mm -hmm. And she, that's, that's when she realizes, uh-oh, I think I fucked up. Yeah. And there is a wonderful moment between the father and son mm -hmm. in this scene mm -hmm. because it, Jem and Dill, their friend, come running up and clearly Atticus mm -hmm. is afraid. Right. And he tells Jem to take them home. Yeah. Take your sister and Dill home. And at this point... Jem has just turned 12. Right. He's still a child on the cusp of being a man. And instead of immediately obeying his father like he always has his entire life, he says no. Mm -hmm. And you can see Atticus becoming upset and saying, take them home. And Jem again, no. Uh -huh. And all that we understand from Scout's point of view is the tension between her father and brother, and she doesn't understand why there's tension. She doesn't understand why her brother is disobeying and why her father is so upset. Mm -hmm. And it's just this incredible moment written from the point of view of a little kid. Mm -hmm. And she starts scanning the crowd because she doesn't know what to do. Uh -huh. She's confused. And she sees someone that she recognizes in the crowd. This is the man that earlier in the story you were talking about that her father had done some work for him, right. legal work, and the man couldn't pay. So he paid him in beans, and he paid him in corn, and he paid him in eggs and what he had from his farm right. instead of in money. Mm -hmm. And she sees this man, and this man is also the father of one of her classmates. Yeah, and who she defended on the first day of school. Yeah, and she yeah. tries to talk to him. Mm -hmm. And the man is ignoring her, and she doesn't understand. She's, she's like, don't you recognize me? I'm Scout. Don't you recognize me? I go to school with your son, mm -hmm. and you, you brought us such and such, and she's asking about some legal case that he has that she doesn't understand. Right. But she understands that these are the words her father used, mm -hmm. and 
it's not a good thing, but don't you worry, we'll get it worked out, because that's what her father had told her. And this man is just standing there, looking away from her, refusing to acknowledge this little girl. And all she's trying to do is understand why are all these people so angry? Nothing has happened. Why are they mad? And eventually he looks at her and he says, I'll tell my son you said hello. Uh And tells the rest of the mob, we're done here. And they follow his lead and they walk away. And there's a quick goodbye with Tom who's in the jail. And Atticus picks up his newspaper and the chair that he's brought with him. And they head back over to get his car from his office. And Atticus and Jem are walking far enough ahead that Scout can't hear any conversation between them. And she thinks that Atticus is probably telling him off. She thinks that he's now in trouble because he disobeyed. He snuck out and he said no when Dad said to go home. And as they pass under a streetlight, Atticus ruffles his son's hair. Mm -hmm. And she describes it as his one gesture of affection. And she doesn't know why. Her dad isn't angry, but she knows he's not. Mm-hmm. And there's never a moment in that where they have a conversation later and resolve this, no. which is what you would want from an adult book. You know, we have this conversation, we right. resolve this, we explain this to this child. No, you always just know that this eight year old girl didn't understand until later, until she was an adult. Yeah what was going on. Mm -hmm. She didn't understand until later that that night her father had chosen to put his safety on the line and was desperately afraid for the safety of his children when they showed up. And she doesn't understand that she just diffused an angry mob of men that willingly would have killed her Mm -hmm. to get to the man in that jail cell. And she diffused them with her innocence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, by simply being a child and, you know, just the way she's... Yeah, no, that whole scene, you're right. That whole scene... And then there's the scene after the trial, which we'll talk about the trial, Mm -hmm. when the entire black community starts leaving things on their doorstep. Yeah. Food and, you know, grapes and whatever they have, just to say thank you that they understand Mm -hmm. that Atticus had done everything he could. Yeah, and that that scene actually more than any of the book moved me to tears. Mm-hmm. You know, just to see that the poorest and the, the the worst treated of society had this greater understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, and that they didn't have to do any of it. Yeah. So let's get to the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, the trial is one of the parts of this book that I actually I kind of thought it was bad. Really? I liked the trial. I felt like the trial was written like some LA law kind of description of a courtroom. You've got the the witnesses that haven't been prepped. Mm -hmm. They don't know what's going to be asked. And the case for the prosecution is completely blown up because her father, Atticus, just asks some really basic questions that the prosecutor should have asked in prep. Yeah, but he is portrayed as being a decent lawyer, but not necessarily savvy, is the way I read him. And I think that's because this is a small county in Alabama in the 30s. How frequently mm-hmm. are they dealing with something as serious as a murder trial? 
Yeah, but there are some of these questions that are pretty basic. That, And it's just portrayed in this ridiculous kind of way. And I, I wonder how much of that was intentional, again, because it's from the perspective of a child watching the trial. And honestly, I was surprised later when I did some research to find out that Harper Lee actually went to law school. I didn't know that. This could have been written much better. Yeah. So I'm wondering how much of it was intentional. I think it was intentional. I think some of it is because it's from the perspective of an eight-year-old. But the, the majority of it, actually, upon reflection, is because this is a kangaroo court and everybody knows it. Okay. This is the 1930s and it's a black man's word against a white man's. Everybody in that courthouse knows how it's going to go, so the prosecutor doesn't feel like he really He doesn't needs have to, to do much prep. He doesn't need to have those witnesses ready because they're white people. And I feel like there was a bit of theatrics from Atticus that, oh, 100%. yes, you want to see that in the hero of the story, but I mean, it's just, that's not what a real trial looks like. You don't get a lot of theatrics in a real trial, and when you do, you end up with ridiculous shit like the O.J. Simpson trial. Right. I mean, I'm aware of that, but I also love his theatrics. I okay. love that when Mayola Ewell first comes to the stand, he doesn't speak to her for like a minute. He goes and stares out the window mm-hmm. and starts to formulate his line of questioning. Yeah, starts yeah. Starts to figure out, how do I want to attack this? Yeah. Um, in fact, I think both his questioning, really of all three of the... Of the, the, the white people, the sheriff, and then mm-hmm. the two Yule, Bob and Mayella, is just brilliantly done. Yeah. You know, where he's asking Heck Tate, the sheriff, what side of her of her face were the bruises on again? He's like, it's the left. Wait, no, no, it's, it's, it's left from my perspective, so that would be the right. See, and to me, those are the kinds of questions that you expect the prosecutor to ask in prep. Those are the prosecutor's witnesses. But the prosecutor didn't care. Because okay. this is white people's word against a black man. So this is a kangaroo court, and the outcome the outcome was it was a foregone conclusion. Yeah, that which was, the yeah. outcome of the trial. Right. It's, he he gets he convicted. Gets convicted, and he gets sent to a prison farm where it just drives him nuts. Are we ready to talk about that? Um, before we get there, I want to get there, but I want to get there through the way that Scout finds out what happens. Mm. Um, because she finds out during that women's meeting that you referenced earlier. Right, that's right. So her aunt has a regular women's meeting, and this is a full-on display of Christian love. Oh, is it not? <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, so during the meeting, they have a, a point where they sit down, and they're all going to have lunch and whatever. Right. And she insists, Alexandra, the, mm-hmm. the aunt, insists that Scout join them. So she's got on her pretty dress that she hates, and she has to sit down <laughs> uh-huh. and talk to these women, and she's seated next to this woman who is going on and on and on about a missionary who is trying to civilize a tribe. Oh, God, and I know. And she continues to bring this missionary up mm-hmm. and use words like civilize, uh-huh. referring to this tribe. Right, and referring to how backwards they are because you don't have one mother, all the women in the tribe are your mother. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. All the men in the tribe are your father. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah. That whole scene. Yeah, and how kind this missionary is. Um, and then the ladies start to talk about um, how unpleasant it is that all of their cooks and maids, who are all black women, yes. okay, oh. are moping Because Tom Robinson has been convicted. And how, okay, Mm -hmm. this was the part where I wanted to throw the book Mm -hmm. because she wrote the character too well. And I just (laughs) 
she says that the woman who was talking about the missionary says that the white people in town need to let them know that the white people forgive them. She then says that there's nothing more distracting than a sulky darkie. It just ruins your day. She had to tell her cook, you're simply not being Christian today. Mm-hmm. And that it worked because her cook stopped moping and says, you never ought to let an opportunity to witness for the Lord go by. Oh. Fuck you! Uh-huh. Oh, I know. Oh my God, you I'm... racist cunt. See, Fuck you. And I think my only comment, I think I highlighted that section too, and I have to look up my note, but I think my note on that was simply, die, bitch. Mm-hmm. Yes. All I had to say about that whole thing is, die, bitch. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just that whole scene is so hard to read. Mm-hmm. I mean, these sanctimonious Christian white women just being terrible. Uh-huh. Oh, and there's no hate like Christian love. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And it's on full display. Oh, and it's shortly after that that Atticus comes home. Right, early. And he asks to see Cal, their maid, um, and um, Alexandra in the kitchen. And Scout slips down from her chair and joins them. Um, So she is asking, he is rather asking Cal to go with him to see Tom's wife. Do you remember what happened? When they went to see Tom's wife? Why they're going to see Tom's wife. Oh, yes, because uh, Tom had been taken to a prison camp upstate, mm-hmm. um, which this was, sounds like it was probably a labor camp. These were pretty common in the South, um, in the, in the th- really through the 50s, mm-hmm. where basically prisoners were always, almost always black because most Southern laws were written to put black people in jail because of that loophole in the 13th Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, Tom decides that he doesn't, at least the way it's portrayed, is he decides that he just cannot wait for Atticus to appeal. He cannot be imprisoned because he's not guilty, mm-hmm. and he runs for it. I mean, this is the way it's portrayed by the the prison guards, so take that with an entire shaker of salt. And he's Uh, shot in the back as he's climbing over the fence. 17 times. And we had learned earlier in the story that he's missing one arm. Yeah, he's got one And according according to the the guards who shot him, if he had had use of both arms, he would have made it out of the camp. Yeah. The description of it to me, I know that it says he was shot trying to escape, but the description of it to me just reads like nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, it reads exactly like a police report about why they shot somebody just because they had too dark of of skin. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that was was how I felt reading it. But yes, that's the way it is portrayed in the book, is Mm -hmm. that he's trying to escape. He's shot in the back 17 times. Yeah. 17. 17. Yeah. In the back. In the back. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah so no. he wasn't a danger to anybody. Nobody at all. No. Yeah, they could have simply crippled him. They could have shot him in the leg. Yes. But no, I, and I, I agree with you. I had that feeling, too, of this feels like the way that police falsify reports now. Mm-hmm. And yes, I just said that on open air, that police falsify reports. I mean... Yeah. cab. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, know how I feel about it. I know. It, if I'm so. drunk at a bar and you ride home, I'm just going to call ACAB. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Every yeah. time, yeah. Have you heard that song? And tell them that you live at uh, 1312. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. After 
after this happens, now, when, when Tom is convicted, Mr. Ewell, who is the one who accused Tom of raping his daughter, right. Mr. Ewell expects that he's going to be a hero in the town. Right. Instead, people hate him. Right. They've always hated him. Yeah, they, now they hate him still hate him. Because Atticus ripped him apart on the stand. And they know that he lied. Yeah. And even though the white people in the town don't like the idea of a black man with a white woman, which he wasn't, they don't like the idea of a poor white man accusing people of things. And they already don't like Mr. Yule. He's already white trash. Yeah. He already lives at the uh, town dump. He is literal trash. They don't like him. Yeah. And now he's done something despicable that even if they don't like the black people in town, they don't like him even more. Right. So instead of feeling like a hero, he's being treated like shit. He responds to this by sending Atticus threatening letters. Mm-hmm. Um, when face. Tom's wife is given a job by a white man in town who used to employ Tom, he follows her to work, he threatens her, mm-hmm. and it gets bad enough that her employer has to come out with a gun mm-hmm. and tell him, if you come near her again, I will kill you. Right, and he invokes. And that was, what was interesting? I had to look this up. He he invokes there the ladies' law. Yes. Are you, do you are you familiar with ladies' laws? I know I've heard of it. Why so don't you go ahead? What that means is, and this is something that in the South, especially in the thirties, and again, this was something that was always aimed at, at black people, particularly. Mm-hmm. It was illegal to use foul, offensive, or abusive language in the presence of women. White women. White. Well, yeah. Well, when when but, the law said women, but what they meant was white women. Right. Right, um, it was never enforced on white yeah. men when they were using that language towards black women. Right. But this white man comes out yeah. and invokes this law to protect mm-hmm. a black woman from a white man. Yeah. yeah. And that's a big deal. It's huge. And tells her specifically, let me know if he ever bothers you again. Mm-hmm. I don't think he will. And, and he doesn't. No, but he also then goes to the judge's house and messes with the judge, cuts mm-hmm. his screen door open. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the crux of the story, which is where I think, the end of the story, which is I think where you're going with that. Yeah, yeah. This is the last couple of chapters of the story. The kids go to um, a Halloween play at the school because the ladies' group has decided that trick-or-treating is evil. Uh And so they're going to do a town play for Halloween instead. And actually, I really like that comic scene, the explanation of why trick-or-treating is evil. Did you you caught that? Mm-mm. It's these two sisters who have moved to town, who they refer to as Tootie and Fruity. Their names are like yeah. Sarah and Beth. Yeah, who are both deaf or at least very hard of hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, the children sneak in on a Halloween night oh, and hide that's right. all of their furniture in the basement. <laughs> and when the ladies wake up, they accuse these Syrians who had been in town the night before of stealing all their furniture while they were asleep. One was like, I heard them. I heard them rolling their R's. And so the sheriff goes and he gets the bloodhounds and he starts searching. The bloodhounds keep coming back every single time to their basement. And she's kind of like, ladies, can you look in the basement? And tells them this is the kids. It's the kids being kids. Which is one of the few times I think that kids will be kids is an acceptable expression. Yeah. Because it's a hilarious prank. But yeah, so they decide that instead of having kids trick or treat, they're going to have that pageant at the school. Uh Uh-huh. And Scout goes dressed in a hand costume, which is important because her vision is blocked. She can't see much. 
her and Jim are coming home afterwards, and it's pitch dark out. Mm-hmm. Um, and she knows they're passing under the old oak tree by the Radley Cliffs, which is important in a few minutes here, um, because she can feel the change in the temperature of the ground. And the whole time from the school to that point, mm-hmm. every time they stop walking, they're, they're hearing footsteps, and when they stop walking, the footsteps stop. Right. And they feel like they're being followed. Yeah. But they can't see anybody. Right, because it's too dark. And then they get under that oak tree that is directly behind the Radley property. Yeah. And the footsteps don't stop. Right. They get grabbed while they're trying to run. Mm -hmm. And Jim just sort of disappears from Scout's vision and from any of this scene. And she starts running and gets grabbed and being Mm -hmm. pulled from behind. And then suddenly she feels the person that has grabbed her fall backwards. Mm -hmm. And she feels like she's going to fall, but something or someone breaks her free. And Mm -hmm. then she just hears... A wheezing, hard cough, and somebody stumbling backwards. Mm-hmm. And when she's finally able to gain her senses, she goes looking for her brother, because of course he would. Yeah. Because she's heard her brother scream at this point. Mm-hmm. The last thing she hears from her brother is a loud, sharp scream like he's been hurt. Mm-hmm. And as she comes to her senses and gets down to the street, she sees a large figure carrying what looks like the body of a young boy running towards her house. And of course, the first thought is, who's got Jim? Yeah. So she goes running after her and gets home. And gets home, and, ran, and at that point, as she's running, basically running into the house, comes up to her aunt, and she hears her father from outside, okay, where's Scout? Oh my God, where is Scout? Mm-hmm. You know, because Jem has been brought in and is laid in bed at this point, and the doctor is being called for. And, you know, at that point, the aunt, you know, Scout's here, I've got Scout. And the doctor gets there, and the whole time she's asking, is he dead, doctor? And the doctor, I, I love the way the doctor handles it. No, he's not dead, I promise you he's not dead. No, he's quite alive. And then finally, like, you want to go in and see him? Fine. So she goes in to see her brother, who is quite alive. Before she goes in to see him, Please. there's a moment between her and her aunt mm-hmm. that really spoke volumes to me. This entire time her aunt has been living with them, her aunt is trying to turn her into a lady. She's making her dress nicely. She won't let her wear overalls. She wants her to go to the ladies' meetings. All Scout wants to do is be a boy and climb trees. And her aunt helps her out of the costume, which has been crushed around her, and kind of cut her up a little bit because some of it's made out of metal. She helps her out of the costume, helps her get dressed, and... She says she doesn't say anything to her aunt in that moment, but it occurs to her that her aunt put her in her overalls, not her dress. Yeah, her aunt said, let me get you something to wear, and comes back with her overalls. The overalls that she is constantly trying to get Scout to take off and get rid of. Right. In that moment of fear and desperation, and they don't know what's happened, she immediately gets the most comforting item of clothing. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, you stop seeing her aunt as a bad guy. Because she's kind of been a low-level bad guy throughout all of this. She's trying to change Scout. In that moment, she is only interested in comforting this child. very concerned. And you can see from the perspective of an adult, this wasn't an antagonist. This was someone trying to raise a child trying to be a mother to a child, trying to teach this girl how to be a girl because she has never been exposed to being a girl. And to a child, this comes across as the bad guy. But when it comes right down to it, she gets her her most comforting item of clothing. Mm -hmm. She doesn't insist on a dress because she genuinely cares for this child. 
Mm-hmm. To me, that scene was important, and it's only like two sentences. And it was like, oh, that's really important. <clears throat> it, well, you're right. It, 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 I, it's funny. I, thought, I can't believe I missed that in the description now, but I did catch that. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that was important. But yeah, so she goes in the room, and she's now telling her father kind of what happened. And then the sheriff comes in mm-hmm. and, and tells her father, yeah, we found the body. Bob Yule's dead. He's got mm-hmm. a kitchen knife sticking out of his ribs. Mm-hmm. You know, and... And starts getting scout story, and this whole time, the large figure that carried Jim in is just standing in the corner in mm-hmm. the dark, just standing there, not saying anything, not moving. And scout doesn't really know who it is; she hasn't mm-hmm. really figured it out yet. And then, after a few minutes of just watching him and watching how he is as she's telling her story, she stops and goes, "Hi, Bo- hi, Mister Arthur." She yeah. realizes that it's Boo Radley, mm-hmm. who has several times throughout the story been there for the children when they needed him. Mm-hmm. Um, he has been leaving them little presents, mm-hmm. little then, uh, gum sticks of gum, and, and little when, toys. When Jim is being a shitty little little eleven year old, ten year old at this point, and tries to sneak up to their place and loses his pants trying to get away from from Arthur's mm-hmm. brother, who's who's shooting at them to warn them off. Uh, when Jim comes back to get his pants, he finds them not only neatly mended or ne- neatly folded, laying on top of uh, the barbed wire fence, mm-hmm. but stitched as if it had been done by somebody with an inexperienced hand. Yeah. And then later, when their neighbor's house is burning down and they're worried theirs might catch fire and they're being made to stand out in the cold and mm-hmm. shivering, Scout doesn't even realize it until later when they come in. Their father's like, where'd you get that blanket? And she's like, blanket? What blanket? Yeah, she has a blanket wrapped around her, and they had been standing on the street directly in front of the Radley house, and Arthur's brother, who they know, had been over helping with the fire. Right, so we know it wasn't Nathan Radley, it had to have been been Arthur, it had to have been Boo. And yeah, so so she takes that character who has been this sort of devil in the you know he's the, the monster in the closet he's, he's the ghost. yeah and in fact there, that was actually one of the things in there there's a line in there that says there, there's many ways to turn people into a ghost mm-hmm. and i was wondering at that are they hinting that arthur radley was lobotomized uh they might have been but the way that he responds after this this is not so. a 1930s lobotomy patient no he's far too cognizant he's yeah. far too with it Yes, but yeah, but that was my first thought with that. But anyways, so she tells so she tells her story of what happened, mm-hmm. and at this point, the doctor comes back in and says, "Look, this boy needs to rest. Everybody out of this room." Mm-hmm. So they adjourn to the back porch, and there's what I think is a really sweet scene there. Where Scout watch, she's walking with with Arthur, and she walks into a rocking chair that is intentionally in the darkest part of the patio because mm-hmm. she knows that she's light sensitive. Because he's been inside for basically his whole life. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like light because it hurts. Yeah. So she guides him to the darkest part of the patio so he can sit and be part of this and just listen. Mm-hmm. And I actually really love the exchange there between Heck Tate and Atticus Finch. Mm-hmm. Because Atticus is convinced that, but basically by Scout's story, because Scout thinks that when, when what turns out to be Bob Yule mm-hmm. falls over um, and gets stabbed, that it was Jim that pulled him down. Yeah. He got up injured and pulled and pulled this man off of his sister. Mm-hmm. And so Atticus is also, of course, convinced of this. And keeps telling the sheriff, no, my boy is going to going to face and the music. And he like believes that he stabbed Mr. Ewell in yes. self-defense. Mr. Ewell is dead, and 
has a knife in him and he is convinced that his son stabbed him in self-defense right. and he doesn't want to just sweep this under the rug right. and have it said that his son didn't have to face consequences. Right. That daddy got him off. Yes. Daddy is the law. Yeah, and I love that whole argument because the whole time Hecate is no, Atticus, that's not what happened. No, he yeah. fell on his own he knife. Fell, and he Atticus fell. isn't getting it. Yeah. He thinks that, that Heck is protecting his son. He's like, yeah. you know, no, you're not going to protect my son from this. My son will face the music. Did no, you... he fell on his own knife. And then finally, Atticus picks it up because because Hecate says something like, it's a sin to kill a son. I actually have, I have that right here. Good, get, what he quote. says is, it would be a sin to take the man who's done this town a great service and drag him with his shy ways into limelight. Yeah, and at that point, Atticus gets it. He's talking about Arthur Radley. Yes. Arthur heard the screams of the children, came running out because he realized these kids that I that I like are in danger. And they found a pocket knife on Mr. Ewell, but a kitchen knife is what he was stabbed with. The pocket knife was on somebody else. That's what the sheriff keeps saying. Oh. That obviously the pocket knife was just dropped. Obviously the pocket knife was his and he you will dropped his pocket knife. He's the sheriff is trying to imply that Mr. Ewell showed up with a kitchen knife and someone took the kitchen knife. Oh, I missed that. Okay. But the way that it's phrased, if you read it really carefully, what happened in this is Boo Radley hears these children screaming, comes out with a kitchen knife to defend them, fights Mr. Ewell off, stabs him, and then grabs Jem and runs off to the house to get him help. And I got all of that except the fact that the pocket knife was belonging to Mr. Ewell. The pocket knife was Mr. Ewell's. Yeah, because... I, I, it was I, either Ewell's or Jem's, but it wasn't... The, the knife that Mr. Ewell is stabbed with, it's very heavily implied by the sheriff that he didn't bring that knife with him. That that knife okay. doesn't, that knife isn't his. I must have missed off that. Because missed he that. even, he says something along the lines of, he must have found that knife in the dumpster, in the dump where he lives. He must oh, have found that knife and right. brought it with him. He found it in the dump. That's right. why it's a kitchen knife. Yeah. Someone threw away a good kitchen knife, and he found it. And he keeps trying to tell Atticus this, and it's not getting through. Right, and I got the broader part, the broader implications that, no, Atticus, it wasn't your son. Yeah. It was, it was Boo, it was Arthur Radley. He heard the screaming, he came out to defend. And then this is where we get, again, um, another mic drop moment of the title of the book, After the Sheriff Leaves... Atticus asks Scout if she understands what's going on. He's assuming that she doesn't understand. Yeah. But she understands perfectly. In fact, she says that the sheriff was right and that it would be like killing a mockingbird. Right. She's the one who describes him as the mockingbird. Oh, that's right. She's the one who views Arthur as that bird that has never caused any harm to right. anybody. He's never done anything but good for anybody, just singing his sweet little songs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, another moment that, I mean, I'm tearing up now, but absolutely reading that had me in tears. Okay. Um, Go ahead. Oh, and just her walking him home. And, mm -hmm. you know, when, when she gets into the front porch and he just quietly says, Would you take me home? Yeah. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> yeah. And then having her stand there on the porch and see everything he had seen for those last three years. Oh, yeah. that And she's describing this as standing on the porch and from his point of view, seeing his children playing in the yep. yard yep. because she can see their yard and seeing his children walking to school yep. and seeing his children take the gifts out of the tree where he's been leaving them uh -huh. and seeing his children standing and watching the fire in the cold and bringing them a blanket. Yeah. And from that yard, you can see the entire neighborhood. Right. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that whole last description, um, Incredible. In fact, there was something in the way that that last sentence went that I wanted to parse. Let me see. Let me see okay. if it was, it was actually important or if it's something that we've actually already covered. Okay. Um, sorry, my phone's being a little weird. So, while you're looking that up, do yeah. you know the history of this book? Um, not maybe not in the way that you're. What are you talking about? So this actually was not the first draft of this book. Okay, yeah. In 2015, Go Set a Watchman was published, and it takes place in the 60s with Scout as an adult going back to make home and remembering some of the events of her childhood from that summer. Right. And it was published as if it was a sequel to the book. It was never intended to be a prequel or a sequel. In fact, there are passages of Go Set a Watchman that are identical to passages in Mockingbird. Right. This was a first draft. This was a rough draft that was never published. Right. It is also not the only book that she was working on. Um, recently, there was an unpublished manuscript that was found that's incomplete, and another author is trying to work on completing this manuscript. Oh. The manuscript is actually a true crime story that Harper Lee went and sat in a courtroom to write a book about this true crime um, of Reverend Willie Maxwell. Okay. You heard of him? No. I hadn't either, and I can't find hardly any information, so I don't know if this book will ever be published. Right. But Reverend Maxwell, in 1977, um, he yeah. went to the funeral of his 16-year-old stepdaughter who he had murdered. And the girl's um, uncle accuses him of murder and eventually kills him after Reverend Maxwell is murdered by the girl's, I think it's uncle, it comes out that he had killed two wives, Maxwell had, had killed two wives, a brother, a nephew, and his 16-year-old stepdaughter, all for insurance money. He was a reverend in the town uh -huh. where he had murdered all of these people. Uh -huh. And there were all sorts of stories about he was using voodoo magic and black magic <laughs> and he was controlling people's minds. And it's this fascinating story of this town and these murders that happened in the 70s. And I really hope a book does come out from her manuscript. Yeah. But there are other sources that I really want to look into because I want to know more really about that fun. crime. Okay, so I found it, and I do want to go over it. So after she comes back from that scene on the porch where you know she can see everything from Boo's perspective, mm -hmm. her dad's in the room, and he's reading a copy of The Grey Ghost, which is one of Jen's books. Mm -hmm. And so he sits there, and basically Scout's like, I don't want to go to bed, can I just sit up with you? And surprising, to her surprise, he acquiesces. He's like, mm -hmm. yeah, fine, just sit with me. 
And, of course, she quickly falls asleep. Mm-hmm. But as he's walking her to bed, she's reciting the story back to him like she heard the whole story. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about how, you know, they, they chased the gray ghost and they couldn't catch him. They thought he did all these bad things, but he hadn't done any of those things. Atticus, he was real nice. And as he puts her in bed, Atticus says, most people are, Scout, when you finally see them. And if that isn't the entire metaphor of the book... I it don't is. Know what is. That is the entire metaphor of every character in this book. Yes. Yeah, and I just I feel I feel like that's a great place both to end the show and for the novel to have ended. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, do we want to rate this one? I mean, yeah. Go ahead. You go first. So, I haven't read this book in thirty plus years. Okay. Um, close to forty at this point. Um. I'm not going to club it. Not this not. holds up. There there are some scenes that aren't great, but overall this book holds up. And it is sad. It's funny. It's poignant. It is a book that still resonates mm-hmm. this many years later. And I think had had I quit, because there's a point where I texted you that, hey, I'm struggling with this, and mm-hmm. you're like, well, you can just sparse note this. And I think if I had sparks notes at that point, I would have probably hit it with three or four clubs. Yeah. Um, as I got further in the book, I found that I was dropping clubs and dropping clubs and mm-hmm. dropping clubs. And at this point, if I was going to hit it at all, I might only give it about half of a club just because it moves so dang slow. And yeah. I understand why it plods along, but it moves so slow and I really need there to be a bit more going on. Okay. And a bit more urgency to get somewhere okay so maybe just uh, use the club to prod the story a bit right right just smack on. the story a little poke it yeah exactly do something yeah like in that simpsons where uh homer's following the turtle on his vision quest uh-huh. and you're poking it with stick come on come on that, that yes. yeah but, yeah but not because you're right it holds up incredibly well and it holds up to the, the test of time i feel mm-hmm. um however i was thinking that i, I need to look up the opinions and the academic work of people of color on this book. Yeah. Because I feel like this is a book that you need more than just white voices because this book is so heavily inundated with white voices. Yes. Um, But no, but, but I think that it really is a great place to end the episode with most people are scout when you finally see them. Have a good night. Have a good night.